2 Corinthians chapter 1. So far we've worked our way through the opening greeting of the letter and into the prologue. And now we return to the latter half of the prologue this morning, and we hear Paul continuing with themes of affliction and suffering on one hand, and God's comfort and deliverance on the other, filled through and through with solid hope for the present and for the future. He's setting the direction here for the entire letter, really, that will often highlight suffering, Suffering that marks genuine Christian ministry in particular and genuine Christian life in general. You'll notice in the passage two basic movements, both marked by transition words. Verse 8 begins with the word for and then presents us with a dramatic, though not a detailed, account of Paul's affliction in Asia with the intention that the Christians in Corinth should be aware of it. And then in the middle of verse 9, the word but introduces the second movement in which Paul does three things. He presents a redemptive purpose for suffering. He declares God as deliverer from suffering and enlists them in prayer through suffering. All of it applies directly, of course, to us, doesn't it? To our own lives, since affliction continues to be our companion today. Will be. Remember, we read in the book of Job that we are born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. And uh, because God is still our Father, who remains the same yesterday, today, and forever. And prayer, his ordained means for delivering his saints, even us from all our troubles. Let's pray. Let's do just that. Our Father, we declare now our total and utter dependence upon you. Our Lord never said a truer word than when Jesus said that without him we can do nothing. So we plead with you, Father, to send your Spirit to do a great work, to open our ears, and hearts to receive your word, to be transformed by the renewing of our minds through the work of your word, and have our lives changed as well. And these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 2 Corinthians 1, beginning at verse 8. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly, utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. 
Paul did not want the Corinthian Christians to be unaware of the affliction that he had experienced in Asia. Well, apparently they weren't entirely unaware because he doesn't go on to describe what it is that he underwent to them. He assumes that they know. Unfortunately for us, we're um, kind of left in the dark on this one. Tell us, Paul, what was the affliction that you experienced in Asia? Give us the details. We may never know. Not in this life anyway. On this side of glory, you can go ahead and add that to the list of questions that you have for Paul when you see him in, in glory. We don't know, but what we do know is this, that whatever its specific nature, it was intense and it was crushing. Utterly burdened beyond our strength, he says. The language causes us to imagine a ship on the ocean so loaded down with freight that it is running low in the water, the gunnels right, and the gunnel right along the water line, or the the pitiful burst uh, beast of burden trudging along the sun-beaten, dusty path, nearly collapsing, back-breaking, legs buckling under the unbearable weight of its load. This is what Paul has just recently undergone in Asia when he writes this letter to the church at Corinth. In fact, whatever this affliction was, whether it was sickness or opposition or persecution, and the theories run the gamut, it was, says Paul, as if we had been sentenced to death. One paraphrase of this verse renders it this way. It was so bad, we didn't think we were going to make it at all. We felt like we'd been sent to death row, that it was all over for us. Now, none of this came as a surprise to Paul, we know, because from the very call of Christ into the ministry, Ananias, whom God sent to Paul, God's messenger to him, conveyed this divine message. Remember this from Acts chapter 9? I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Some call into the ministry, huh? Of Christ. I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. That's what the apostles did. They suffered for the sake of Christ's name. For the sake of carrying his gospel to the nations. And praise God, my brothers and sisters, that they did. Because we too have received the news that we have eternal life. Through faith in Jesus Christ. And simply that, by trusting in him. We have received eternal life. How do we know this? How have we received this? Because the apostles, as they laid the foundation for the Christian church, were willing to mix with the mortar of that foundation their very blood and to soak those blocks with sweat and tears all their own. 
And Christians who continue to build on that foundation yet today that they laid follow the same pattern. Some of them more than, than others. We know of Christians who are serving as pioneer missionaries. They're, they're taking the gospel to hostile places and dangerous or, or simply staying true to their Savior's name in places where such fidelity costs life and limb. Places like we just prayed about Iraq. Don McClure was the son of pioneer missionaries. He had grown up in the remote interior of Africa. Don personally discovered uh, many tribes of natives for whom he was the first white man that they had ever seen. He had killed spitting cobras in his bedroom. He had a close encounter with a crocodile that literally leapt to jumped into his canoe with him. He had, he had been rescued by his father last minute when he was surrounded by a hungry pride of lions. A friend of his in college and seminary by the name of R.C. Sproul called Don Tarzan because he was the most fearless person he had ever met. R.C. keeps a, a newspaper clipping in his Bible that reports the martyrdom of Don's father. They were encamped, uh, Don and his father were, in a remote area of Ethiopia. And during the night, they were awakened by a surprise attack from communist guerrillas. Don and his father were captured and dragged before a firing squad. Don was standing next to his father when the guerrillas open fire. First shot was Don's dad. It killed him instantly. Don heard the shot. He saw the flame from the rifle that was pointed at him from just feet away. He fell next to his father, shocked to realize that he was still alive. In the confusion of the night, the guerrillas fled as quickly as they had appeared. Don hugged the ground, feigning death until all was quiet. He suffered only minor flesh wounds, though he was covered with powder burns. Fighting the impulse to flee, he remained there long enough, Don did, to dig a shallow grave for his father with his bare hands and there to commit his father's body to the ground. Modern Christians like Don can say with Paul that it was so bad we didn't think we were going to make it. Without exaggeration, we felt like we'd been sent to death row, that it was all over for us. But you know, all Christians, all Christians are called to suffer in some way and to some degree, because they are Christians. Committed Christians will. They find that living a genuine Christian life in whatever setting, at whatever time or whatever place, living a genuine Christian life costs, and sometimes costs dearly. The words of comfort here in Paul's letter is for them, it's for you, for committed believers all, whether you are killing cobras in your bedroom or simply living counter your culture, it is to your condition that this, this passage speaks. 
If you're not a committed Christian, if you're not committed to the Christian faith, if you're, if you're not committed to Christ, if you're more one of those uh, go-with-the-flow-of-the-culture kind of Christians, you're committed uh, primarily above all to your own comforts, then you might as well just take a nap for the next um, several minutes because this passage has nothing to do with you. It has nothing to say to you. We already heard last week that this is, that those it is those who share abundantly in Christ's sufferings who also share abundantly in his comfort. Now that's not to say that all true Christians will encounter and undergo immense and intense afflictions in their lives. Afflictions are sovereignly bestowed by God's sovereign and loving Hand, whether you're the Apostle Paul in the first century or a 21st century Joe or Jane Christian. Some Christians, and we're among them, aren't we, live much more tranquil lives than others. Though our commitment to Christ is exactly the same. But we all suffer to some degree, I say, and inasmuch as we undergo those sufferings for Christ's sake, whatever they may be, encounter them as God's sovereign dealings with us, for that is what they are, and seek God's glory in those afflictions. The principle of principles of this passage apply to you as well. Indeed, some of you have experienced terrible suffering. And you may be even as I speak. You may be on the rim of despair. A despair so deep and so dark, there seems to you to be no way out. No escape, no exit. Your load is crushing you. It is inexorable. And it is unbearable. And you, like Paul, feel paralyzed, despairing of life itself, just as it we're waiting for, di- uh, waiting to die. I know that some of you have been there, because I've been there with you. Of course, feeling quite futile, I was, I did, in myself, unable to do much more than to hold your hand and pray. The question is, what shall we do at such times? How shall we respond? Or maybe you're not feeling on the verge of death at this moment, but but doing your work as unto Christ and not for men is causing you to rub right against the grain of your co-workers, forcing you to take unpopular stands at work, at, at home, maybe setting you at odds with your boss or with with family members, living as a real Christian may be causing friction for you with your family, with your neighbors, with your relatives, costing you financially, bringing real discomfort into your life. That's part of this too. Or affliction is visiting you like it did Job, out of the blue. You didn't see it coming, but for no apparent reason at all. It has come to you, and you're really feeling under it. What shall we do? Well, perhaps the first thing to do is simply to be honest about the affliction. We need honesty 
in affliction. Paul didn't try to sugarcoat his troubles. He didn't try to drown them in a, in a layer of uh, goo, of cliches, and phony spirituality. Steve Brown recounts the story about the, the science of the mind believer who found himself in hell and kept repeating over and over to himself, it's not hot and I'm not here. It's not hot and I'm not here. That's how some Christians try to get through the hard times. They keep saying, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine, when they're not fine, pretending that they're not hurting when they are. I couldn't help but think of Bob. Right? You remember Bob from, from the movie? What was it? I feel good. I feel great. I feel wonderful. I feel good. I feel great. I feel wonderful. I feel good. I feel great. I feel wonderful. As if repeating it enough times will make it true. I know that some of you put on a brave face because you think it more spiritual somehow than tears and fears. Even when the moment calls for exactly those, just be honest. Be honest like Paul was with himself, with his brothers and sisters in Christ, with God, or like the psalmist, who it seems when you read the psalms is crying out more often than not with transparent honesty in the psalms that he is hurting, he is struggling, he is crushed. None of this super spiritual spiritual silliness about how everything is hunky-dory. Of being a Christian, it must be. That's not true Christianity. First, honesty and affliction. Second, we need to learn reliance through affliction. That is, we need to learn to rely on the right person through our affliction. We've created a cult of reliance, haven't we? A culture and a cult both of, of self-reliance in America. Or rather, I should say maybe perceived self-reliance. We have, we have idealized this. We've idealized independence, haven't we? Just think about the standard, the ideal that we hold for ourselves in our senior years. You know, we, we, we make special walk-in bathtubs, electronic gadgets, specialized tools, senior services. Why? Because the ideal in our minds is always independent living, self-sufficiency, no reliance on anyone but ourselves. And as long as we're relatively healthy and have some strength and some money, we can live with that, in that delusion, can't we? That we are self-reliant. When we're healthy, we think we've got the world by the tail. We don't need anyone. We do what we want. We go where we want. We accomplish what we want. And all with nary a thought to dependence on anyone. All by our own strength. It's our default position. It's what we do. And so we must learn the truth. We must learn what Jesus means when he tells us, without me, without me, you can do nothing. And nothing is more perfectly designed, is it perfectly fitted to shift our reliance from this, from self to God than affliction. Verse 9, that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. 
Dear flock, if the Apostle Paul, if the Apostle Paul had to learn this late in his life and ministry not to rely on himself, but on God, and it took affliction for him to learn it and to live it, well, that's going to require the same for us, isn't it? Obviously, it took Paul's deathly despair to bring Christ's resurrection power to bear. And it takes the impossible situations that we face to cause us to cast ourselves on that resurrection power for deliverance. Always. Always. Notice Paul doesn't say raised in the past tense, or will raise in the future. Verse 9 again, affliction makes us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Resurrection for us, my brothers and sisters, is an ongoing thing. John Chrysostom wrote in the late fourth century, notwithstanding that the resurrection is a future event, He shows us that resurrection happens every day. For when God raises up again a man or woman whose life is despaired of and who has been brought to the very gates of hell, he shows nothing other than a resurrection. Snatching from the very jaws of death the one who had fallen into them. Listen, Christians, God, your God, your God is by nature a raiser of the dead. Remember that, my brothers and sisters, when you're facing impossible circumstances as you follow Christ. Yes, he will raise you from the dead, but he is raising us from the dead. Isn't this, after all, the life to which God, to which our Lord Jesus, who has saved us by his grace, has called us? A life of dying? He says, come, die. That's his call. Dying to ourselves, taking up the cross, following Christ. Affliction, death, resurrection. Affliction, death, Resurrection, affliction, death, resurrection. That's the pattern of our lives. That's the constant, ongoing pattern of our lives. As C.S. Lewis so memorably put it, nothing that has not died will be resurrected. Don't worry, Christian, about dying. Don't worry about dying every day. Because God raises the dead, that's that's what he does. That's who he is. And then we find that true success in life that can be achieved only by that resurrection power, by his power, not our own. We sang it, we sang John Newton's hymn, didn't we? No strength of my own. We are never more safe, wrote Newton, never have more reason to expect the Lord's help than when we are most sensible that we can do nothing without him. We need troubles. We need troubles, don't we, to keep us looking to Christ. 
We need troubles to break our trust in ourselves and instead to own our weakness and own our desperate need for it is when we lose lose our sense of self-strength that we come into our real source of strength and say with Anna Waring, glory to thee for strength withheld, for want and weakness known, for fear that drives me to thyself, for what is most my own. And being driven to to him, we find third real help in our afflictions. Verse 10, he delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You see, from every for every deliverance from one affliction to the next and to the next, we grow in confidence, don't we? That he will deliver us from the next affliction and the next affliction and the affliction and we're in now and the affliction we'll face tomorrow and next week and next year. I love how Paul just stacks him up here. He delivered us. He will deliver us. He will deliver us again. Until he delivers us once and for all, from all our afflictions and wipes away our tears and kisses them all better. On him we have set our hope, by which we do not mean, by the way, a hope-so hope. Boy, I hope so. No, no, no. Hope in the Bible is a full and complete confidence that he who has delivered us is delivering us now and will ultimately deliver us. Christian, you may be feeling crushed right now today by some affliction or another. You find yourself in good company, but you will. You will be delivered from this. You will. And you don't have to take my word for it. This is God's word, his own promise. Psalm 50, call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you. And you shall glorify me. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, saith the Lord. To be honest in our afflictions, let's learn in our affliction to rely on the only one worthy of our reliance, and that's not you. And let's find real help in our affliction, and then forth, let us help one another in our afflictions. And how may we do that? We saw last week, of course, that we must comfort one another with the comfort we ourselves have received from God in our afflictions. This week, another way. This simple, but wonderful and powerful way. Just this. Prayer. Prayer. Verse 11. You also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Let's be truthful with ourselves. What do we do when hardship comes to us or to others? What's the first thing that we do? We pull up our smartphones, right? 
and look for the answer. We look to our technology. We Google for a solution. But the first place and the middle place and the last place must always be God. And he's told us how to, how to contact him. It's not complicated. You don't even have to press the you know, keys on your screen. All you do is talk to him. That's it. All you do is start talking. In fact, you don't even have to say it with your lips. He hears your thoughts in your minds. To tap into his power, as it were, to get the real help we need and the real help that we need others to have, that we want our brothers and sisters to have. It seems, doesn't it? It seems oversimple. It, it just seems so plain, so elementary. But the help's not on your smartphone. It's on your knees that real help is found. Didn't we sing it in this house just last week from the 121st Psalm? I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the heaven, the Lord of the maker of heaven and earth. And how do we get that help for ourselves and for others? By asking, simply by asking, just ask. You must help us, he says, by prayer. Listen to this. Prayer is indeed a mystery. But it is stressed over and over and over and over again in the Scripture as a vital prerequisite for the release and experience of God's power. It's true that it is God who delivers, that God stands in no need of human prayers before he can act on behalf of his afflicted servants. That's true. Yet there is the manward as well as the Godward aspect of our deliverance. And the manward side is summed up in the duty of Christians to intercede in prayer for their fellow believers who are enduring affliction. And then I love this line. In prayer, human impotence casts itself at the feet of divine omnipotence. Human impotence casts itself at the feet of divine omnipotence. Now that was just a line when I typed it into this sermon. It was quite another as my heart was breaking this morning and reading the message from my friend Lydia about her son, Sasha, which was right about the time I read this line and underlined it. Human impotence casts itself at the feet of divine omnipotence. That's what prayer is. Thus, the duty of prayer is not a modification of God's power. We can't change God's power, but a glorification of it. In fact, isn't that just exactly what we read in Psalm 50? I will deliver you and you will glorify me. That's how it works. Paul understood this principle, and that's why he's so often asking for prayer over and over. If you're familiar, if you've been reading Paul's letters, you see it. He's always asking for prayer, for prayer, for prayer. That's why we make such a priority of prayer in this church. Why we take the time of a Sunday morning in worship to pray, and even more, 
in our Sunday evening services, and even more than that on Wednesday evenings. We're not playing around. The powerhouse of a church must be prayer. God help us if our Wednesday evening attendance is any indication of how much we're relying on prayer in this church. We're simply trying to make Scripture's priority our own. This is why we send these prayers up and down the prayer net, prayer chain all week long, too, and ask you to be praying all through the week. We're simply trying to make Scripture's priority our own. And who knows how many of our spiritual siblings have been delivered from afflictions and sustained through them on the other side of the globe, on the other side of this city, on the other side of this aisle, precisely because we've been praying. And in answer to the prayers we've offered on behalf of one another, interceding. This is why we must pray for one another. This is not an option, okay? This is not a little add-on to our Christian lives. We have got to pray for each other. We have got to be asking one another to pray for us. And that can be humbling, can it? That is very humbling, to admit that we don't have it all together, that I have to rely on you to pray. My, my, that can be humbling. I think it was John Calvin, though I couldn't find it, couldn't confirm it, but I seem to recall reading in Calvin somewhere that to fail to pray for others is uncharitableness. But to fail to ask others to pray for us is pride. So true. Worst thing we could do to one another here is to refuse or to fail to pray for each other or to fail to ask for prayer because it is to withhold from each other the most powerful form of help. Failing to seek prayer from others is just as bad because it's just another way that we say, hey, I've got it all together. I'm okay. Everything's cool. You know, I'm, I'm, I've got this under control. I'm reliant on myself. I'm sufficient to myself when, in fact, we desperately need each other's prayers. I need you to pray for me. Please, please pray for me. And I will pray to you because you need my prayers too. To quote Samuel, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. And here's the grand thing about all of this. When we do pray, when we intercede for one another, the result, verse 11, is that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Literally, the faces of many will be turned to heaven, upturned to God in thanksgiving. And so Paul, here he ends right where he began, back in verse 3, where you and I must begin and end in thanksgiving to God. And so we will, when we're honest about our afflictions, when we rely on him through our affliction, when we pray for one another in our afflictions, and so find the real help for all our afflictions. Thanks be to God. Amen.